Uh, if you're just joining us, last week we started a series uh, called Creation and Fall. And basically, we, we're trying to contend that the Bible is not a, a collection of, of stories all thrown together, kind of like a Christian Aesop's fables with a little moral in the end. But the Bible is one story telling the story of God. And, and when we find our place in that story, then we find order and meaning in our lives, order and meaning in the, the universe, order, order and meaning in society. And, and really, we're trying to say that that, that there's, there's some passages in the Bible that really undergird, what, undergird what's called the meta-narrative of Scripture, the big picture. And everyone has, oh, there we go, thank you, everyone has a worldview. Um, and, and all that means is everyone, you can turn me down a little bit. But <laughs> thank you. Let's, they should just hear me in the back. Not, okay. You got that? I'm still pretty loud. Let's, let's, let's bring it down just a minute. Okay, so everyone has a worldview. And I said last week that in, in Western world, in, in Europe and in America, uh, even though it's shifted and even though by and large uh, people have moved away from claiming Christ, since the Enlightenment, they, they've still had what I call, or Os Guinness calls, borrowed ethical capital. So, so you may not have the worldview of Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, but you still have the borrowed ethical capital. For example, uh, our world, the secular humanist, loves the idea of human rights. That only comes from a Christian worldview, by the way. You don't get that. You can't invent that on your own. We'll see that next week on the Imago Dei. Human rights is a Christian worldview. And so uh, even though they don't hold to that, they have to borrow that ethical capital and say that's why we like human rights. But, but by and large, a lot of the, that which was clear over the last couple hundred years is starting to become fuzzy. And uh, from the Enlightenment, you moved into modernism and you moved into secular humanism. And this great idea that, that humans would create a utopia and everything would be wonderful except then World War I happened and then World War II happened and they discovered Auschwitz and Birkenau and they discovered uh, all these tragedies and so out of that uh, some people said the humanist project of modernism has failed and they've moved into postmodernism and postmodernism has said well there, there is no utopia, there is no such thing as truth the best you can do is find your own meaning and out of that as that's been uh, pumped down the, the, the line from us in our education, in our, in our entertainment, in our culture as a whole, it's now uh, arisen to the, the idol of the autonomous self. So we live in a, a world today, you've seen it shift a lot in the last five years, that the autonomous self, whatever you yourself decides, that's right. And so we're going to champion whatever ever each individual person says is right or wrong. And, and so that's where our culture is. But, but we're contending that, that, that the Bible says that there's a different story, and it's a good story, and, and it's a good story for everybody. All those that uh, are, are chasing the, the idol of autonomous self will in the end find that it is an empty idol. And, and so we're trying to say God actually has some things to say. Now, everyone has a worldview, and it basically follows along these same, pro same uh, patterns. How did we get here? What's wrong with the world? Because we all know something's wrong with the world. H how do we fix it? And how's it all going to end? So that's, that's true of everyone's worldview. Now, the Christian worldview says uh, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
And, and we, we begun last week looking at the first two of those, creation and fall. And last week I said there's three things in this passage. Before, if you can even use the term before, before creation there were three things. There, there was God, He eternally existed in three persons, so therefore there was love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't create the world because He was needy or lonely. Uh, he created the world for His glory and to magnify His fame and name. And, and, and that's a very good news for us. But we also saw there was darkness and Nick read that. And out of the darkness, by the, the creative word of God, comes order and meaning. And we see that Jesus fulfills that for us. And today we, we look at this passage once again. Now we're going to look at the whole, not the whole chapter. We kind of ended it before uh, the end of chapter 1. Because next week we'll look at the imago Dei, or the image of God. But, but I want to look at this here first, this this passage. You may have noticed if you've read through your Bible that, that in Genesis 1, it talks about creation, and then Genesis 2, it talks about it again. Uh, but but you, you may have noticed some differences there. So let me just say a word about uh, Bible interpretation real quick here, uh, because I know when you come to this passage and you do a series like this, the first thing people want to know is, what about the dinosaurs? And uh, what about evolution? Is the earth really, really old or is the earth really young? And, and, and was it created in a literal six days or, or, or do those days take ages and meanings? And, and the first thing I would say about that is the first rule of interpreting anything is what we call authorial intent. What did the author intend to communicate in that moment when he wrote? So we, we ask that question of the Constitution. We ask that question of, uh, of a book or a movie. Uh, that's, how you, that's the first question you should ask. And so we, we ask that question of the Bible. Now, the Bible, as I said last week, it is very long, and it, it covers a lot of different genres, a lot of different uh, types of literature. And so you have uh, historical prose narrative. That's just, here's the account of the events. And even when the Bible does that, it doesn't do it in the 21st century kind of way that we would want. Like, there's stuff that's left out. And we're like, hey, you should answer this. And the Bible doesn't really care about what we think about it in that moment. Uh, but it's just trying to tell us what it wants to communicate. So that's the historical prose narrative. There's prophetic literature. And so how do we understand that? That prophecies had a, a meaning in the moment the prophet spoke it, but often it had a, a double or triple meaning down the line. And so that's prophetic. There's apocalyptic literature and, and good luck interpreting that because that's like Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. That's hard. There's prophetic, there's, um, there, there's wisdom literature. Uh, we look at like Proverbs. You, you, there's this verse in Proverbs uh, that says, answer a man, in a, answer a fool, something about answering a fool and then not answering the fool. The, one verse after the next absolutely contradicts itself. Now, if you, if you read the whole Bible the same way, you're like, there's a contradiction. But you say, no, it's a proverbial truth. You interpret it in the meaning, that it, in the way that it was intended to be interpreted. And, and so one of the big things is, is poetic literature throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, we see this certainly in the Psalms. We see this in the Ecclesiastes. We see this in the book of Job. We, we, we see, and the, in, in, in Hebrew, they love what's called uh, parallelisms or, or uh, repetition uh, I forget the word that's on the tip of my tongue right now, but uh, you see a lot of repetition and, and parallels. And, and, and as you get through that, and sometimes, uh, for example, Psalm 119 uh, is the longest chapter in the Bible. But did you know that 
Each one has seven stanzas, and each stanza starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first seven stanzas are, it starts with an aleph, and then the second seven starts with a beta, and the third starts with a gamma. Uh, uh, aleph, beta, uh, forget that. Uh, it's been many years since I've been in Hebrew. But when I, when I was in Hebrew class, we started with Genesis chapter 1. And the reason you do that is not only just because it's the beginning, but you may have noticed it as we were reading through it. There's a lot of the same words. Uh, you don't have to have a huge vocabulary to feel like you're an accomplished Hebrew student and get through Genesis 1 because you see things, uh, and God said, and it happened, and he saw, and it was good. God said, it happened, saw, it was good. There's evening and there's morning, the first day, evening, morning, the first day. So now to your question, so is, this, is, does, is that literal seven uh, 24-hour days, or is it a long time? And I'll just say this, I don't know. I don't know. Now some of you are thinking, well, now there's two people in this room that are thinking, uh, you're a denier of the faith. You hate, you hate the Scriptures if you don't know. It says very clearly, uh, there was the evening and there was morning, the first day. And the second is, I get that argument. And then others are like, what are you, a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal? Obviously, uh, the science and everything, there, there's, there's times where the, the word yom for day is used in, in a, a longer period of time. Even Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, yom doesn't mean a 24-hour day. It means a longer period of time. And so some people say this and some people say that. And uh, I would say this, if, if you were to just read it, and, and I studied the size this, these times this week again, uh, the most likely explanation, if you were to read it as historic prose narrative, would be that there are 24-hour days. There's evening and there's morning. Uh, that, that makes it seem pretty clear. But I would also say this, just wrapping up this point, that's not the main point of the text. I'm not saying that the text uh, isn't telling us that, that's, that the earth is young or old. I'm saying the main point of this text is that it's a song. It's a song. It's a Hebrew poem. It's a, it's a parallel. And, and remember authorial intent, uh, that when, when the writer, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, writes this song, he's writing into a place, into a time, into a world that said, here's how the universe came up. It, it was chaotic. It was crazy. These wars went on in the heavens, uh, and, and, and out of it, the universe came, and it was just this kind of mistake or, or the modern secular uh, narrative like we just got here by accident. It was time plus chance plus something that started a big bang and, and out of the chaos came this world. But, but actually that into that, Genesis says, no, God created it and he was good. All those things you're worshiping, the sun and the moon and the stars and the ocean and the beasts of the field and, and, and the trees, all the things that the surrounding peoples worshiped as gods and all their regional gods, into that space, God says, I created it. It wasn't an accident. It was good. And I did it purposefully and I did it orderly. And I am the sovereign over the universe. The sun is not a God. The stars are not a God. The beasts in the field and in the ocean, they are not gods. I am God. And so we can debate, we can have uh, people wrestle with, is this old earth, young earth? That's, uh, that's a different question. I don't think the, the Genesis 1 slams the door on either one of those. But I want to say if, if we just 
just stop there, we miss some of the beauty of this passage. Think about this. God created the universe, and it says that he created it to make much of himself. It's glorious and beautiful. There's nebulae and quasars that we'll never see that are praising God right now, and they are magnificent. And, and in that, God, we see, is an artist. And his very first words to us in scriptures are not prose narrative, but poetry. What does that say about God? And when you start to ask that question, now you start to see the wonder of Genesis chapter 1. Now, let me ask you a question. Where's your happy place? Where's your favorite place on earth? I'm going to ask you, so be ready to share a couple of you. Like, where's that place where maybe it was a time in your life, or maybe if you could go anywhere right now, where would you go? What, 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 what's the temperature? Uh, what, what, what does that smell like? Maybe what does it taste like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it evoke in you uh, if, if you could be in that place right now? Anyone want to share? Uh, just, I'll share mine real quick. It's uh, standing about knee deep in, in water on, on an island called Gahi Island, part of the Karama Islands, about a two-hour ferry boat away from Okinawa. I've got uh, my snorkel mask in one hand, my snorkel fins in the other. I'm looking out across the turquoise and the blues and the, the green of the 60 islands surrounding me, and, and the sand is coming through my toes underneath. And, and when I look under the water, I, I see the coral and the fish with beautiful colors and patterns. You see the order and the design. And in that moment, when I look under there, all I hear is the praise of God. Isn't God a glorious artist? Isn't he magnificent? Uh, doesn't it take your breath away? We all have those moments and time where, where we see the, the first thing that I want us to see in this, this passage, the goodness of creation, the goodness of creation. Uh, there's three things I want you to see, but the first thing we see in this passage is that we need to behold the artist. He's an artist. He's a poet. He's a songwriter. He, he uh, creates and he delights in it. We see this six times. And it was good. God said and it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. That It's not an accident. We aren't here by mistake. We're not the result of some primordial ooze. We are here because of the goodness and the creative mind of a God who creates things that are beautiful and that are glorious. It talks about his, his glory, his power, his majesty. It talks about his holiness. He isn't part of the creation. He created it. He's separate from it. He's powerful. But, but here's the thing. Um, when, you, when, you, when you're really into an art form, you, you can enjoy it more than others, right? So uh, when we were in Europe, I got to go to a conference in Paris, uh, Tim Keller conference there. While I went there, my daughters and wife, they went to the museums. And so they went to the Louvre and they went to see Monet's and Manet's and uh, all those things. Um, and, but, but if you were really into Monet, you would go there, and, and we saw people like this, you'd go there and you'd sit in front of one painting and you just sit there all day because you've studied Monet and you've studied his progression and you've studied the strokes and the effects of the Impressionist artwork and it means something more to you. Now, I could come along and with my eyes see the exact same thing that you're saying and be like, okay, next painting. And uh, 
but, but not if you've studied the art. There's a different level of enjoyment, and it might be food for you. You might be a foodie, or it might be music and a type of music, jazz or, or, or rap music, or it doesn't matter. If you've, if you've studied it, you enjoy it more. Not only that, is I, I found that if you know the artist, you enjoy it even more. And so we've known some artists where... Uh, uh, my friend, he was a, a painter and also a doctor. He took care of uh, my daughter, Abby, when she was in the NICU, and he showed me some of his artwork. And as because I knew him, and now I could see the artwork, and he explained it to me, I enjoyed it more. Uh, when our neighbors in the Czech Republic performed in the, uh, the symphony, and, and uh, when our piano teacher uh, competed uh, for uh, classical piano across Europe, and he invited us to come out, we were just amazed because it's really good piano, but we know this guy. He teaches our kids piano. Like we enjoyed it that much more. And so this passage is saying, behold the art and behold the artist. It's amazing and it's wonderful. And so we ask the question, uh, where's your happy place? That's a place where God has done art. The first thing we want to see is the goodness of creation. Now, again, six times it says, and it was good and it was good. So the Eastern worldview says that, uh, that, that, that the created world or the physical world is an illusion. So pain is an illusion. Uh, uh, pleasure is an illusion. And the problem, again, remember, worldviews ask the question, how did we get here and what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world in Buddha's mind is attachment, that we're too attached and, and therefore we suffer because we're attached to things. And so if you just knew that it was all just an illusion and if, and if you could just go through the right motions and, and detach from that and, and eventually go into the nothingness of nirvana, then you would be, then we, there's not even a term. You wouldn't be happy. You wouldn't be sad. You'd be nothing. Uh, so that would be the Eastern worldview. But in the Western world, under the Greeks and the Romans, they also said, uh, no, there's physical and there's spiritual, but the, the physical is bad. So things that you can touch and see and taste, that's bad. But, but the spiritual, that's really good. Uh, that's, that's all good. And, and unfortunately, this, this tendency has stuck with Christianity uh, for 2,000 years, even though it's not biblical. This Gnostic heresy that the spiritual is good, but the physical is bad. And so we, we, we lift up the spiritual. We say, we're just going to detach from the world. We're going to go up on the side of the mountain. We're going to pray. We're going to be in a silent retreat. We're going to do all those things. That'll be good. But, but you know, physical things, uh, you know, enjoying food, enjoying uh, your marriage, enjoying all those things, that's bad. But, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what, what, what uh, Christianity says. Christianity says the spiritual is really, really good, but the physical is really, really good as well. The goodness of creation. Jesus' first miracle, you, you remember what it was? It wasn't healing someone. It wasn't even feeding the people, although that would have been physical as well. Same thing with healing. But his first miracle was at a wedding, John chapter 2. Uh, they ran out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He makes 
wine. It says the good wine. Really, it says the best wine. Jesus comes. He has taken on the physical, taken on a second nature, left heaven in glory, and then as he lives a life you and I could never live, his first act is an act of creation, and it's an act of celebration. It's a party. He resurrects a party that's about to die with some booze, and he says, this is really good stuff. Now, some of you are offended, but he did that. Um, and, and, he, and, and the master of the ceremony is like, wow, this is the best wine I've ever had. Yeah, because Jesus made it because he thinks the physical is really cool and he loves to make good things. Isaiah chapter 25 tells us that a day is coming when God's going to swallow up death. And after he swallows up death, he's going to throw a feast that says specifically with rich food and well-aged wine because God cares about the physical. He says it's good and we should say it's good. Now this was crazy to the Greeks. It was crazy to the Romans. First Corinthians, Paul talks about the importance of the resurrection, that Jesus not only died, he didn't, he didn't rise again just spiritual. He, raised, he, he rose. He was resurrected with a physical body. And, and Paul says this, to the Greeks, it is foolishness. It's the height of foolishness. If the, if the physical is all bad, why would you come back in a body? But Jesus says, no, the physical is good. Our body is good. I'm going to resurrect the body. And with his disciples, he says, give me some fish. I love that. He's eating fish. He's like, look, touch my hands. Touch my side. I'm physical because the physical is good. And and as Christians, we've got to push out the Gnostic heresy and think only the spiritual is good. No, both are good and have their place. Of course, we can twist that and, and turn away and make too much of the physical. We'll get to that in a moment. But the first thing that we should see in this passage is Christian. This leaves no room for the Christian to leave sour, dour, kind of uh, Eeyore lives. Like you, you need to enjoy life. That, that's part of what it means to be created in God's image. You need to enjoy things. The goodness of creation invites us to enjoy and delight in God's material gifts. The goodness of creation is it's available to, to all. It's available to, um, to people that have no care for God, people that hate God. You know what? They can still enjoy a steak and a cruise and all those things, and they get to delight in that because of God's goodness. But, but we get to take it to the next level. We get to have... Okay. Uh, we get to have... Uh, we get to have steak and we get to have a vacation. We get to have uh, uh, all the good things, but they don't have to be the ultimate thing for us. We get to roll that up into worship. We get to enjoy all the things that anyone else could enjoy in marriage, but it doesn't have to stop there. It doesn't have to be the ultimate. So the next thing we see in this passage is not only the goodness of creation, but the finiteness of creation, meaning it's limited. So... Um, you know, some religions are ascetic, meaning you, you should, the pleasure is, is bad, you should avoid that, uh, and you should only go, for, go in for, uh, you know, uh, only fasting, only separating yourself, only eating bread, only drinking water. That, that's what Martin Luther tried to do because he thought that would be more spiritual before he had his awakening to the gospel. Uh, but, uh, but others like material Western worldview, they're, they're entirely hedonistic. Because if, if, if the world is all there is, you better get everything you possibly can. 
Like you better experience every piece of joy you possibly can. But, but the, the Christian view of, of creation says it is good, but it is finite. We, we can have it taken away or we can have a lot of it, like we saw with the Apostle Paul. Whether in plenty or at once, we can live with great joy because uh, you can go out and make a lot, of good, a lot of money and do good things with that, enjoy that. But you know what? If God takes that all away tomorrow, you still got God. You still got the infinite and, and, and you still have hope for eternity. It, it's finite. The Christian also understands that, that uh, because it's finite, we, we realize we don't have to get all of it now, right? Like our culture's obsessive compulsion with uh, bucket lists, right? I got to get my bucket list. I got to get my bucket list. You know if you're in Christ, you have all eternity to do that, right? You, you know you get to enjoy physical things forever and ever, so you don't have to make them your God here. You can worship God. You can sacrifice your life. You, you can give your life away for other things and not check a single thing off your bucket list because you have forever and ever and ever to do that. So, so say God blesses you this year, and, and you say, you know what? Uh, God's blessed me. I think, I think I'm going to take my family to Hawaii. Say, well, praise God. Enjoy that. Enjoy the creation. Enjoy the restaurants. Enjoy all of that. And, and say next year, uh, God blesses you again. And you say, well, you know what? I think uh, because I have forever to enjoy these things, I don't have to get it all now. I, I think I'm going to give that money away to something that invests in the kingdom or, or, or to help people out in Houston. Or I'm going to use my vacation time differently this year. And you know what? Do that with joy. Do that with gladness. You know, the Christian, the Christian can do both, right? There, there are times for both. The goodness of God should, should, should make us enjoy creation, but the finiteness of creation should also make us realize that, that we don't live for it. We don't worship this life as the only thing that will ever be here. We, we know we have forever and ever to go with that. Nature is great, but it's finite. It's not made to be worshipped. The third thing I see in this passage is what would it call the importance of creation. As God is saying, God, you know, God really loves creation. You know, he, God, God loves what He's done. And uh, he, he loves, we'll see next week, He loves human beings. He loves our bodies. Like, sometimes as Christians, because the Gnostic heresy has... has seeped into our thinking, we'll say stupid things like, well, well, when I die, this, this body will just go away and I, you know, I'll be with God. You know what? God cares about your body. He cares about what you do with your body after you die. That's why I think Christians should be buried and not cremated, because the body matters to God. But nonetheless, uh, when, we, when we think about this, Jesus rose, Jesus is going to raise our bodies. He's going to uh, make it so important that he's going to leave heaven in glory, as we talked about, and enter into creation. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the cosmos. That's what it says. We translate it world. For God so loved the cosmos, all of creation, that he sent his only son. Yes, God loves the world and he loves people, but God really cares about the nebulae and the quasars and the solar system. He loves it all as any good artist would, right? Like, I created that. I don't want to see it just destroyed and messed up. 
God loves the cosmos. He thinks it's very important to him. Christianity uh, calls us, if we have this doctrine of creation and, and understand the importance of it, Christians should lead the way in regeneration and uh, making much of God's creation. So there's a quote from C.S. Lewis in, in Mere, Christiani- Mere Christianity. He talks about this contrast between the Eastern worldview and the Christian worldview. And he says this, listen to what he said. He said, confronted with a cancer or a slum, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize this is also God. So again, pantheism says everything you see is just part of God. We're all just part of God. So, so cancer, that's just part of God. The flood, that's just part of God. Like the suffering, that's part of God. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Again, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis. These aren't my words. The Christian replies, don't talk damned nonsense, for Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world that time, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. See what he's saying? As Christians, we, we say when we see suffering, when we see brokenness, when we see the, the creation deteriorating, we don't just say, oh, well, you know, God's going to renew it all anyway. He says, no, this matters to God. We, we fight injustice. We fight for the, the people with the Imago Day in their lives. We fight uh, against the destruction of our environment. We, we should be as committed to renewing creation as God is. And so if we have this doctrine and we see the goodness of it, we should uh, play and enjoy it. If we have this doctrine and we see the finiteness of it, we should hold things loosely for God to give and take away. In the end, we still have God. If we see the importance of it, we fight against the darkness, injustice, hunger, disease, cancer, flooding, all those things because we have the doctrine of creation. This should shape us to be, to be the happiest people and the most sober-minded people on the planet. This should, shape, this should be an attraction to the church, the Christian's view of creation. But it, it's not just enough to say, here's how we should do. We, we have to experience creation. And uh, as I said, as I try to say every, every week, we have to look for Jesus in this. Where, where is Jesus in this? Well, we know Jesus is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In this passage, we see God saying several times, giving what's called a benediction, the good word, benediction, the good word. And he says, the stars are good, the creations are good. Elizabeth Elliot used to say, a clam glorifies God more than you do. You're like, what? What are you talking about? I'm I'm made in God's image. Yeah, but a clam was made to be a clam, and in its clamness, it glorifies God. You don't do that. You've turned your back on God as an image bearer. You've sinned, and you don't always glorify God as an image bearer. Therefore, the clam glorifies God better than you do. So, uh, in this passage, it says that uh, the, the stars praise God. <coughs> Excuse me. The moon praises God. The moon is not a God, the sun is not a God. But 
they praise God. They're doing what they were created for, and God gives them the benediction. Good job. Next week, we'll see the creation of Adam and Eve, and God will say, very good. But Adam and Eve are the last people that receive the benediction because sin will come into the world, and they won't be very good anymore. They'll have gone their own way. But again, God loves creation, and creation is important to God. And so God enters into the creation in the person of the Son. He takes on an additional nature, truly God and truly man. And, and He feels what it's like to, to breathe air. And He feels what it's like to feel hunger and to be tired and to grow up. And He lives a life in creation, a perfect life you and I could never live. And, and at His baptism... What does God say to him? He gets baptized, the Spirit comes down, and the voice, the voice heard from heaven for the first time since Adam and Eve says this, well, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He receives the benediction. Adam got it. Now the second Adam gets it. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17, he gets the benediction again. Uh, God comes down and, and, and in a white cloud of light says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See, the story of humanity since the fall is we're all seeking a benediction. We're all trying to desperately find something that says we're good, we're enough, we're valuable. And so we look for it in power or sex or, or, or prestige or money or, or any number of things. And so a girl will go from guy to guy just wanting to hear the benediction or a guy will try to uh, give away his family and just climb the corporate ladder just wanting to hear a benediction but all the benedictions of the world ring hollow and so we try more and more and more because we need one benediction and Jesus got the benediction but as Jesus went to the cross and on the night that he was betrayed he went to the garden of Gethsemane the word of God who created the world and it was good he prays to his father in that moment he says father take this cup from me and you know what he hears silence he receives a malediction the bad word do you see the irony of the good word the creative word receiving silence And as he goes to the cross and he hangs on the cross, as he's tortured on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I receiving the malediction? It's because this, it's the gospel. Jesus received the malediction you and I deserved so that you and I would one day finally get the benediction our souls long for, the good word. And Colossians chapter 1 tells us that on the cross, God reconciled all things to himself so that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we can come in here, you can even do it today for the first time if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you can hear from the Spirit of God, not from my voice, but from the Spirit of God, by grace through faith, the good word that says, you are my beloved my adopted son or daughter, in whom I am well pleased. It's what we were created for. Jesus took the malediction so that we could have the benediction. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go to the table and remember that once again. God, we thank you for your word, and uh, it is a good word. Lord, thank you for the goodness of creation, that you have created us to be a people that laugh and play and enjoy and taste and see 
Uh, the good things of this earth, Lord, may they not become the ultimate for any of us. I know we're, we're guilty of that at times, but Lord, may the good things that you choose to give us be rolled up into praise of you. And God, when you choose to take away, may we find at the end of that we still have you, which is more than enough. And then we could say with the Apostle Paul, whether in plenty or one, I have learned the secret of being content because we have you. Lord, thank you that you went to the cross. And though you were the good word, you received the bad word that we deserved. And you gave us the good word in your place. God, you look down on us and, and see not our righteousness, for we don't have any, but you see Jesus' righteousness covering us. And you say, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. We thank you for that. Lord, let us walk and live in light of that. May we be a people that this changes us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>